Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome to new books in russian and eurasian studies i'm one of your channel hosts kimberly st julian varnan and today i'm speaking with dr rebecca reich about her new book state of madness psychiatry literature and descent after stalin rebecca welcome to the show thank you very much for having me um i wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about yourself I came to study Russian literature from having really loved Russian books and music um, when I was uh, a very young person, and this developed into studying Russian history as an undergraduate and then um, Russian literature as, um, as my final major when I was an undergraduate at Yale. And then I went on to do a PhD in Russian literature at Harvard with a focus on um, Soviet um, culture. Um, but I also have a background in journalism, so I've um, spent quite a while in Russia working at the Moscow Times. Um, I, I worked also at places like The New Yorker, and I now work at The Times Literary Supplement. Um, so I'm a literary scholar, but I'm, I've always been interested in how literature intersects with things like politics, history, and society. So much more broadly just than um, a focused um, literary study, although I do that too, and a lot of my work focuses on close analysis of literary texts. You have a very diverse background. (laughs) Um, And so Rebecca Reich is also a lecturer in Russian literature and culture at the University of Cambridge. And so Rebecca, can you tell us how you got into your research interest in psychiatry, literature, and dissenters? Well, um, there's a sort of personal element to all of it because my father, Walter Reif, is um, a psychiatrist who has always been involved with thinking about kind of ethical issues pertaining to psychiatry. And when I was small, he was actually involved in um, in investigating um, the uh, abuses of Soviet psychiatry. So I remember him going off to the Soviet Union when I was a child and hearing that he had met um, psychiatrists there. Um, so it's something that I knew about in the background. Um, and this was really a topic that people like him, psychiatrists or political scientists or human rights activists were working on in the 70s and um, the 80s. And they were working on it um, at the time very much as a, as a sort of very current problem, an issue that needed to be addressed um, in which people's lives were really at stake. Um, and Generally, those sort of um, disciplinary approaches have continued uh, uh, since since that time. But um, the literary context, the cultural context of uh, the abuse of Soviet psychiatry has not been something that has really been considered in depth. And this jumped out at me as a pretty important question. Um, when I was in graduate school and came across the Nobel Prize winning poet Joseph Brodsky's um, long narrative poem, Gorbunov and Gorchakov, which is um, uh, based on the time that he spent um, in uh, two psychiatric hospitals um, and, um, and, and sort of is, to- is told from the perspective of uh, two psychiatric patients. And so when I saw that and I saw sort of the literary, um, the importance of literature in relation to these issues um, of, of psychiatry and of the abuse of psychiatry, um, I got interested in other writers who had been through that experience and also in how psychiatrists looked at creativity, at how they looked at nonconformist creativity and whether there was any link there with these political issues pertaining to dissent and um, dissident um, uh uh, hospitalization. And the project really opened up from there into other writers and also into looking at how dissidents wrote about their experience of psychiatric hospitalization and more generally also how psychiatrists looked at dissent. So it's a pretty far-reaching research project in terms of the multifaceted aspects that you're looking at. 
So before you get into some of your key arguments, can you tell us a little bit of background about literature, psychiatry, and dissidents, and how this comes together? Um, I would say that uh, probably the best way to start is to just talk a little bit about what um, actually was going on during this period. So the um, post-Stalinist period isn't unique for um, uh, for the sort of politicized uses of psychiatric diagnosis. It exists um, during the Stalinist period. We could also think back um, as far as Chadayev, um, the philosopher who in the early 19th century was declared mentally ill by Nicholas I for um, for for his for his critique of um, of Russia, uh, but. In the Stalin period, you, there, there are more isolated um, incidents of it, but what you really see in the late 1960s is the emergence of reports that there is a much more systematic um, use of psychiatry and psychiatric hospitalization um, to uh, repress um, dissenting points of view, to, um, uh, to, to give dissident psychiatric diagnoses and um, uh, essentially doing um, uh, engaging in a kind of repression that um, discredits the words of people who speak out against the state because if they are declared mentally ill then um, they are not responsible for what they say so it's 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 a, it's something that um, uh, is 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 different in character but many dissidents at the time looked at this as a kind of continuation of the uh, repressive um, Tendencies of the Soviet government, um, at, and but crucially at a time when, after um, de-Stalinization and Khrushchev's um, secret speech in which he exposed the abuses of, um, of, of Stalin and Stalinism, um, they, the the same kind of arbitrary, extreme uses of repression, such as occurred during the Great Terror, um, were no longer viable, and so this is a sort of a new, a new manifestation of it, um, and one that has, I think, very deep connections with what is at the same time a very long-standing um, tradition in Russian literature um, and culture of thinking about madness. So, uh, one thing that I do at the beginning of my book is I look back toward the, to this tradition, um, and I look back really as far as. Um, you know, even the medieval period, where you have um, this paradigmatic figure of the holy fool, who um, tests society's virtue essentially um, by engaging in sort of shocking behavior, often feigning madness, um, and and is venerated um, to the point of uh, sort of having a place in society for um, uh, where where they are licensed to some extent to question the authority of of the powers that be. So um, you see that you you have that coming coming as early as sort of as the medieval period, and then um, if we sort of jump ahead to kind of a more modern uh, uh, literary period, um, you have Pushkin's writings on madness. You have Gogol. You have Dostoevsky, of course, you, um, and, and you have Chekhov and, um, Bulgakov's Master and Margarita, which centers, um, around the psychiatric hospital. And, um, and all of that lays the ground for, uh, works that I look at in the post-Stalinist period, where you really see these kinds of referencing of these earlier works, um, all over the place, a kind of rooting of the authority of the, of the dissident or the dissenting writer in the post-Stalinist period to um, define madness for themselves, you see that rooted in the historical, the, his, the, the tradition of writers um, doing the same thing for the previous um, two centuries. And so one example, to be more specific, of the um, of, of uh, text that's often referenced is um, Anton Chekhov's uh, story, Ward Number 6, from 1892, and this is a story about a, um, a doctor who directs a provincial hospital in which there's a psychiatric ward. That's the sixth ward. And um, he becomes interested in one of the patients um, who's a sort of um, uh, in, who's an intellectual figure. Um, and 
this, um, he begins visiting him and sort of gradually decides that this patient is in fact much more clear headed than the rest of, than the people who are outside of the hospital, than the people who are considered normal in society. But of course, his interest in this patient and in going to the ward sparks suspicion on the part of people outside of the hospital. And he is eventually, um, hospitalized himself. Um, and you see this story referenced again and again in post uh, Stalinist works that are dealing with psychiatric abuse uh, because they are rooting their own authority um, to question what madness means, um, to question the diagnoses that are that are placed on dissidents in the authority of literature, which stakes its own claim to defining what that is and questioning medical authority or society's authority to say what is normal and and what is not. So I think that all of these things come together. Literature comes together with politics, um, with 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 sort of medical science and knowledge. Um, and and um, while while the actual phenomenon of um, of the politicization of psychiatry is not unique in and of itself, the kind of confluence of all of these things um, is really quite intense in during this period. It's that's fascinating, and so. When you're talking about these dissidents who will eventually use their psychiatric diagnoses, um, you know, as a way of kind of going against the Soviet state, who are some of the dissidents that you're focusing on in your book? So uh, very roughly, my book moves from um, in the early sections, I, I sort of lay out the um the, the kind of general argument. And then I talk about, um, I, I first look at the perspective of the psychiatrists who, and, and I look at ways in which they look at creativity, in which they look at dissent. And I look at actually the literary mechanisms, um, by which diagnosis occurs and, um, their views on literature itself and on what constitutes normal literature. Um, and what constitutes insanity in, in creative production. Um, and then I move on from there to looking at dissidents, um, and some, uh, figures that I look at there are, um, figures, um, like, like Alexander Volpin, um, Vladimir Bukowski, Simeon Guzman. These were all figures who were quite, um, prominent in the, um, in the exposure of psychiatric abuse. Um, and then there are three more chapters in which I talk, um, which, which focus on um, sort of individual case studies of dissenting writers. Um, one of them is on Joseph Brodsky, uh, the poet, um, and it looks at the poem Gorbanov and Gorchakov that I talked about earlier, as well as some of, as the sort of imprint of these themes of madness on his, on the work that he um, produced in um, emigration. And I then turn to the um, work of Andrei Sinyavsky, um, otherwise known as Abram Terz, who was a um, literary critic who wrote under the name Sinyavsky within the Soviet Union, but was sending uh, uh, unsanctioned works abroad um, to be printed in what is called Tamizdat, um, which um, comes from Tam, which means there, and Izdat to publish, um, and, and was eventually, um, arrested in, um, 1965 and put on trial together with Yuli Daniel for anti-Soviet and agitation and propaganda. Um, and I look at his works, his representation of, uh, sort of the madness of society. I also look at his essays, um, alongside his fiction. And then the final chapter is on, um, Vinidikti Refiev, the sort of cult writer of the um, uh, and author of the uh, uh, the wonderful novella Moskva Pitushki, but I focus in my work um, in that chapter on a poem. I'm sorry, on a play that he wrote in 1985 called um, Valpurgis Night: The Steps of the Commander, which is set in a psychiatric hospital um, similar to um, the ones where he himself was treated um, for drinking. Um, so that's the general, those are the kind of key figures. There are also many other figures who come up throughout the book, um, uh, who are similar to, or were engaged with these, these figures. And something that I think is quite that, that, that knits the book together is that they're aware of each other. They're often reading each other. They are engaging in dialogue with each other. Um, and it's that dialogue that 
sort of polyphony of voices that emerges and that I hope is somewhat reflected in, um, in the ways in which the chapters come together, that actually becomes one of their sort of key arguments against a kind of conformist society that um, stipulates what is normal and what is not, because they are looking at normality as what they describe as which is, which is um, the Russian term for dissent, but actually literally translates to thinking differently. And um, these dissenters, they, they not only thought differently, but also wrote differently and acted differently. And they, they prided themselves on, on this differently, not just um, from the state, but from each other. And so the sense of polyphony of dialogue is something that really emerges quite strongly um, in the book. Um, it emerges as a, as a theme of, um, of, of some of the literary works that I examine, such as Brodsky's um, poem Gorbanov and Gorchakov, which is itself entirely in the form of a dialogue. And I argue in the book um, makes the case for dialogue the dialogue between these two internal voices um, of, of, the, of the poet um, being crucial to sanity. So it's when that dialogue breaks down that um, a much more sort of frightening insanity potentially sets in. Dialogue is also important as a kind of um, on the level of form. So I draw on the work of Mikhail Bakhtin, um, at, who writes about kind of dialogic or multi-voiced um, forms of um, writing, things like irony, parody, um, the incorporation of many voices, polyphony into, in, into the formal qualities of a text. Um, and I also look at how many of these dissidents imagined that what they were doing was they were excuse me, they were forcing what they described as a psychiatric monologue, a kind of monologue of psychiatry in which they were drowned out. They were forcing psychiatrists into a kind of dialogue that they imagine. And this is something that they specifically talk about being a, um, being a, being a sort of ideal, a, um, a psychiatry that will actually speak to its patients and to which patients can speak back. Um, and uh, one of the figures in my book, who I haven't mentioned yet, Petro Grigorenko, who was hospitalized for his political activities, writes in his memoir about how this is how he imagines society. A healthy society is one where there is difference of thought. Coming back to this theme of inakamusli, of thinking differently, it's one where people think differently. And he specifically talks there about how um, he imagines that in such a society, one would talk back to their psychiatrists. And you also see this in the work of, let's say, Alexander Volpin, when he talks about, he actually writes psychiatric transcripts. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he writes transcripts of his psychiatric evaluations, um, which um, these aren't published. I found these in, in, in his archives, which are at the Memorial Society in Moscow, um, in which at the end of these transcripts, these sort of verbatim transcripts, he um, invites his psychiatrists to append any um, corrections they may have. So he's actually really inviting the psychiatrists to kind of engage with him and co-produce a kind of more ethical psychiatry that won't drown out the voice of the dissident um, to the same extent. So dialogue really is something that I think connects the book together, that brings the book together, but also is something that these figures were um, striving for um, in their understanding of what a saner society would be. That's fascinating, uh, especially when you talk about the dissidents wanting in their writing to essentially force their psychiatrists to join them in a dialogue about their mental illness diagnoses. And so can you talk a little bit about the other side? What are psychiatrists thinking? Are they using literature in their psychiatric diagnoses of these people? How are they defining what is sane and what is not sane in this time? Well, the important thing to really begin with is that I think um, uh, the, the important thing to understand is that, you know, in the Soviet Union, psychiatry is not an independent discipline. Um, it's part of um, it's a state. It's a, it's a state controlled discipline. It's part of the um, it, it's subject to pressures um, from the uh, ideological apparatus of the state. Um, so 
we're not talking we're not talking about um, you know Foucault. Uh, Michel Foucault writes about psychiatry in the kind of Western context and its disciplinary or repressive tendencies. We are talking here about a very different kind of societal structure, and this is something I talk about at length in in my book. The ways in which actually this these circumstances differ from those that Foucault describes, um, and um, at the center of this psychiatric system is a figure I talk about quite a bit, who is Andrei Snizhnevsky. He is the most powerful psychiatrist in the Soviet Union. Um, he um, he runs the psychiatric journal. He runs um, several of the um, sort of chief psychiatric institutions. He has a school of psychiatry um, that um, is often called the Moscow School of Psychiatry. Um, and he came to power... Um, in the late years of Stalin's um, uh, of Stalinism, so he's he comes to power just before he sort of consolidates. He and his he and his colleagues kind of consolidate their hold over the um, psychiatric system just before Stalin dies, and this control is not um, this control lasts until Snizhnevsky dies in 1987. So the destalinization that you see in other parts of society isn't really happening in psychiatry. Um, and what's unique about this psychiatric um, system? Well, Snizhnevsky focused on the classification of mental illnesses. His research was primarily in what's called nosology or the, or the classification of mental illnesses. And um, his classification... In, um, in his classification, he focused heavily on schizophrenia, um, and one of the um, uh, diagnoses, the one of the diagnoses that emerged was um, this. What became ultimately quite a notorious diagnosis, which was um, sluggish schizophrenia, um, which was um, applied to quite a number of dissidents. And this is a form of schizophrenia that is sort of progressive um, in the sense that it kind of moves very steadily um, uh, toward, you know, uh, toward um, a kind of, um, it, it gets worse more and more uh, in a very steady way, but it works, but it progresses very slowly and often imperceptibly to the layman. So you can only really see that somebody has sluggish schizophrenia often if you are a psychiatrist or a person who has this kind of exclusive claim to knowledge that only psychiatrists have. Um, and so it's hard to, to, to say back to a psychiatrist, no, this person does not have sluggish schizophrenia if only a psychiatrist can really see it. Um, and, and so this is, this is one of the kind of problematic diagnoses. Um, and um, I think that um, the development of these diagnoses has been explained very well in terms of its sort of political um, contexts or motivations, um, in terms of kind of institutional politics and how and how that has um, how that contributed to the development and consolidation of these diagnoses. Um, from the medical perspective as well. Um, and these are all relevant and I draw on all of them. Um, and I'm grateful to all of that work, but I hope I, what I add is a kind of literary understanding of what goes on in the, in the psychiatric, um, sphere. And I'm interested really in kind of two questions, which is, um, the first of which is, how do um, psychiatrists engage in a kind of literary production when they uh, turn patients' lives into psychiatric histories? So I look at dissident psychiatric histories, um, which were um, helpfully gathered by dissidents um, and uh, released to Samizdat as evidence of this abuse. Um, but I also look at, um, I, I, I spent, I've spent quite a lot of time reading um, psychiatric textbooks, um, reading um, decades of the Korsakoff journal, um, the psychiatric journal, um, its numbers looking at, looking at these, um, looking at how these diagnoses are sort of um, theorized and looking at the relationships between that, these diagnoses and, um, and how they are played out when they are applied um, to, uh, to, to the dissidents themselves. Um, so for example, um, 
I believe I mentioned Vladimir Bukovsky, um, uh, one of these dissidents who I focus on. Um, in 1966, he was diagnosed with sluggish schizophrenia of a paranoiac form. Um, and I, again, looked at how these, um, how this diagnosis was actually theorized in the Korsakov Journal, in the psychiatric textbooks. And then I looked at, um, the, at his psychiatric report to see, um, how his life was, um, how his life, how his case history um, did or did not intersect with this kind of narrative, this sort of uh, pre-written narrative of disease, and the resemblance is really uncanny. Um, you see how the um, from Bukowski's teenage years, when he um, was first first began to be politically active, um, to get involved with sort of student underground groups. Um, his life is transformed into a kind of very slow, imperceptible, sluggish progression toward what the psychiatrists call philosophical intoxication um, and toward kind of paranoid um, paranoia, um, toward delusions of reformism, which was another term that um, psychiatrists um, used that was often appended to dissidents. Um, and, you know, he is said to be paranoid that... Um, that people are out to get him, which, which is not very surprising actually. Um, and, um, and, and so that's one example of a kind of, uh, of the kind of source base I'm looking at. Um, but what's interesting here is that Snizhnevsky and um, the Moscow School more generally described psychiatry as an objective science. So this is, you know, I, I, so so moving away a little bit here from the from the kind of um, to, to broader questions of kind of uh, history of medicine. What's um, what's interesting here is that this is a um, this is. Uh, kind of a version of psychiatry that really has trouble acknowledging its own subjective elements. It's very, very. It stakes quite a lot on on its on on its on on the fact that it's objective. But within the context of claiming um, objectivity, um, Snizhnevsky and many of his colleagues talked often about what they called their art, and they called that their iskustva, their art. And I talk about this as the art of diagnosis in my book. Um, and this is something deeply subjective that is not acknowledged as being such. And what they mean by this is the idea that um, in addition to all of the objective measures, the, the physical tests, the psychological tests um, that are done on a patient, um, a doctor is able to intuit a kind of essence, what they call an essence of disease, from the patient's individual life stories. Um, but of course, as I said already, with regard to Bukowski, this essence is something that depends on the on the um, on the system on the categories that you bring to your analysis. And these categories um, and these categories are pre-written; they exist. They're in the textbooks. You know, psychiatrists are looking at them, are, are learning them from the textbooks that I was reading, um, and it shapes their perception of dissenters' lives. And of course. As after you're diagnosed, the rest of your life sort of unfolds as predicted and everything begins to fall into place. So you can see how um, there's a kind of narrative impulse to these, uh, to the building of these psychiatric narratives that is in itself a kind of literary production. Um, psychiatrists are engaged in writing patients' lives and they do so in such a way that um, uh, accords with um with with the kind of ideal literary na narratives that exist within the diagnostic um, classification itself, so that's really one side of um, of the kind of literary aspect of how I look at the psychiatric um, side of the story, and the other aspect is um, about um, how psychiatrists looked at creativity, how they look at creativity and literature or other creative arts. And this is um, an interesting question that is not at all specific to the period I'm looking at. Um, there is quite a long history of um, Soviet and before Soviet um, Russian psychiatrists writing about art. Um, and not only the art of the mentally ill, but um, the art of uh, the art of uh, people without diagnoses, of great writers. And this is something that the scholar, the historian Irina Sirotkina has written on wonderfully. Um, she 
talks about how uh, in the late 19th century, um, when psychiatry was just really coalescing as a discipline and seeking to assert its authority um, as a as a sort of source of knowledge, literature um, is such an authoritative, um, you know, uh, it, it, it gives such authority within society that psychiatrists are anxious to kind of piggyback onto that um, onto its authority. And so they start producing these um, kind of essentially case histories of writers um, or of even the literary characters in writers' texts and sort of getting in on the conversation that's being had among literary critics and essayists and philosophers and, and, and writers about literature itself, but from, but establishing their own unique perspective as psychiatrists to interpret these texts. Um, so when, what you see in the post-Fallon period is this continuing interest in, um, in uh, literature, um, in using psychiatric tools to analyze literature and saying that psychiatry has something to contribute to the analysis of literature. Um, and also um, the claim that uh, you can use literature as a diagnostic tool. There are sort of objective qualities to art that can tell you whether a person has a mental illness or not. And so I became interested in, in this because it, I, um, I think it could tell you something about how psychiatry looks at creativity. Um, and this is quite relevant for these dissident figures and especially the dissenting writers that I look at um, because they are, you know, they're questioning um, the relationship between creativity and insanity, which is, which is something that all of the figures in my book are interested in. Um, so for, to, to be more specific, um, for instance, I, I, I looked at a number of studies that were produced um, in the early 1980s about the visual art of patients with different mental illnesses, mostly schizophrenia. Um, these were introduced by Snizhnevsky himself, and they were um, co-authored by a number of his most important colleagues. Um, and what you see consistently here is a kind of... Um, what you see is a kind of um, adherence to uh, sort of what what I argue are really socialist realist categories of um, of of analyzing art, and of course by this I mean by socialist realism I mean the um, the Stalin era aesthetic doctrine that um, had been um, established in 1934 at the first Congress of the Union of, uh, of Soviet Writers. Um, which focused on, which emerged as a, as a kind of aesthetic doctrine that um, presented reality aspirationally. So as it should be, if reality is on its way toward a better communist future, rather than really as it is. Um, so it's, it's, it's positive, it's aspirational, it's, um, it's end directed, it's directed at kind of a, um, um, uh, the end of uh, of communism being achieved. So, in that sense, it's what's called teleological, um, and it's also it's also often it, emph- it, it emphasizes kind of clearly delivered content, um, you know, a sort of realistic style over abstraction, over formal experimentation, and you really see that expressed very strongly in these um, in these works that I looked at, where they um, consistently look at kind of uh, the differences between um, more or less um, advanced cases of, of diseases, and they show how the more advanced cases, the more sort of deeply rooted illnesses tend to realize, realize themselves in art that, is ab- that, that shows tendency toward abstraction, toward um, sort of graphic manipulation, toward... Um, toward negative portrayals of reality, toward not being able to really understand what the person is, 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 uh, painting. Um, and then, you know, the, the sort of, you see things like, um, landscapes or very kind of, uh, representational portraits being portrayed as, as examples of, of less, um, advanced, um, illnesses. So this is something that, um, testifies again to, I think what is a kind of overarching issue in the book, which is that um, psychiatry kind of preserves the hallmarks of, um, of the Stalinist past. 
here we have a psychiatry, a, um, a sort of school of psychiatry that comes to power, as I said, in the late years of Stalin's um, rule. And it does so at a time when, um, when these kinds of, uh, this kind of art is really, um, for political reasons, being um, promulgated as the art that people must adhere to. And because psychiatry itself is not um, reformed, is not really de-Stalinized, you see these um, art aesthetic categories being maintained into the post-Stalinist period and applied to the non-conformist artwork of, uh, of um, people who, like, like, like many of the writers um, that I've looked at, and I think the implications of this are, are quite important for many of the writers and dissidents that I've looked at because, um, you know, in the wake of Stalin's death, Khrushchev delivers his secret speech, um, in 1956. He, um, he exposes the abuses of, of Stalin, um, and he sort of stakes a claim to rebooting the, um, the Soviet system along more rational lines, along a kind of, um, uh, uh, to, to having gotten rid of the excesses, the arbitrarinesses, the authoritarian nature of Stalin's rule, the cult of personality. This will now be a state that is going to be guided by reason. It's committed to progress. And of course, psychiatry stakes its own claim to being, um, a sort of paradigm of that kind of um, rationality, knowledge, enlightened modernity, um, sort of ethical and, and ethically driven discipline. Um, but as but 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 when uh, word spreads of the uh, abuses of psychiatry, what dissidents really begin to realize and 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 say is that psychiatry is actually the first. The, the first culprit in, um, in de-Stalinization not having happened. Psychiatry is in itself um, implicated in, uh, in the worst excesses of a kind of Stalinist state of mind. And this is a state of mind that they repeatedly again and again equate with a kind of um, delusional state, uh, a sort of delusional state of mind. So, um, if um, Stalin, the, Stalin was um, a, it was even Khrushchev himself who said during his secret speech that um, socialist realist art films under Stalin represented reality as more of a fantasy than reality. Um, and he says in his speech that, um, for instance, uh, communal farms, uh, were shown to have, you know, to be overflowing with, with, with food when in fact they were not. And Stalin must have become convinced by these very films, by the films that he himself was, um, essentially commissioning. Um, and as a result, he becomes in a sense, a kind of dupe of his own kind of, um, fantastical socialist realist representation of reality. So socialist, so life is turned into a work of art. And as a result, not even, not only society, but Stalin himself succumbed to a kind of creative madness, a madness of turning life into art. And that's really at the root, I think, if we sort of move away now from the, um, from the psychiatric angle and think about how dissidents respond um, and how these dissenting writers respond, that's really something that they are um, pointing their finger at, the madness of society and specifically a kind of creative madness, a madness where um, where reality has been so ideologically uh, manipulated that it has lost all connection with reality itself. It's it's fascinating this conflict between these dissident writers who are seemingly normal people who are sane who are in this kind of insane situation like that you describe that they're judging their reality and their reality is being judged by people who were basing that reality on ideology and so how do these authors how do they kind of mitigate that in their writing how is their writing turning the gaze from their own sanity to the sanity of the society that they live in. 
Well, that's exactly, um, that's really sort of the crux of it, I think. Um, so, you know, dissidents and dissenting writers, um, whether or not they are actually um, dealt psychiatric diagnoses, they find themselves in a position of either in reality or potentially um, having their art um, equated with a kind of um, uh, with, with madness. And that's a position, you can't really argue your way out of that position. If that's what psychiatry says you are, then that's what you are. Um, but what you can do is you can redefine what madness means. You can say that madness doesn't mean that, it means something else. And um, this is really what, what happens here. So again, um, if psychiatrists are pathologizing Inaka Muislia, thinking differently, and dissidents are saying this is not, um, this is um, thinking differently is actually evidence of sanity. And it's what a society needs to do in order to be a healthier society. Then they put themselves in a position to be able to actually claim their own sanity. And the implications of that are that what looks like madness to society becomes evidence of sanity and the, psych- and the, and the patient or the dissenter is in a position to play psychiatrist to the state and to a society that has lost its mind. So you really have this moment where the kind of terms of diagnosis are flipped, or you use the word gaze, the kind of psychiatric gaze um, is turned around to focus on psychiatrists. Um, and so, for example, um, you can see this in quite a number of the of the dissident works that I've that I've looked at, um, where they're talking specifically about psychiatry. So one of the figures who, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, who I focus on is the um, is the psychiatrist um, Simeon Guzman, who is a dissident psychiatrist who produced um, in the early nineteen seventies a reevaluation of. Petro Grigorenko, who I spoke about before, um, uh, Grigorenko has had been hospitalized a couple of times in the 1960s. He was at that by that point rehospitalized, and um, and Glusman describes having been um, shocked by the fact that his discipline could be used to achieve these aims. You know, he's a true believer. He wants his discipline to not do these things. And it's, there's actually interesting parallels here with what's happening among nuclear scientists who become um, disillusioned, who, who feel the need, people like Sakharov, Andrei Sakharov, who feel the need to speak out against the abuses of their own discipline um, uh, for, um, in, in, the, in the nuclear arms race. Um, so here we have a psychiatrist speaking out against the abuse of Soviet psychiatry. And he does so by producing, by, by, by essentially, even though he doesn't have direct access to Grigorenko, Glusman gathers um, reports on him. He gathers the writings of Grigorenko. He gathers um, uh, uh, the psychiatric reports on him that have been circulated through Sami's gut, through the underground network of um of, of um, texts that are hand-copied and passed around among people in the Soviet Union at the time. And he produces a psychiatric report that really is quite interesting because it follows the set pattern, the set narrative that I was speaking about before of how you write a psychiatric report. It, it does everything that you would do if you were reading this, if you were reading um, the textbooks on how to produce psychiatric reports. But what it does, what, 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 the, what the report does ultimately is justify the normality of Grigorenko's political activities. And it and so over the course of the um, uh, over the course of this document, not only is Grigorenko established as um, sane, but, uh, but, but we have an example of Glusman himself, a psychiatrist, demonstrating, the san- this, demonstrating through the production of the report his own sanity. And um, by the end of this report, what, is, what, what he is saying is that not only is Grigorenko himself sane, but it is the state itself, it is the psychiatrists who either... Um, Wittingly or unwittingly, and um, are are responsible for for what has happened to him. And if it and it, and in the case of of it being wittingly, intentionally, then they um, are then they deserve to be then they deserve to be held to account. And if it's unwittingly, then um, 
then in that case, there's um, it's it's psychiatry being sort of used in certainly irrational ways that don't at all accord with the the task with with the task of an ex- uh, of, of an objective science and especially the one that it claims to be. So you see there really um, this moment when a psychiatrist, when, when a dissident is taking on the perspective of a psychiatrist and turning around the psychiatric gaze to focus it back on the state, on those who perpetrate this kind of violence against normal uh, citizens. Interesting. So it seems that you're, you're arguing that, so literature and literature and its discourse kind of mediates this interaction between psychiatry and dissent and this and the state so do you have any concluding thoughts on on those connections um i think that um well one thing that's important to say is um that um dissidents are concerned not only with um with establishing their own sanity, but they're also concerned with um, demonstrating the insanity of the state. And they, and as I mentioned before, they do this by kind of exposing a sort of um, literary um, nature to the insanity of the of of the state. They 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 suggest um, uh, that the uh, state itself has kind of succumbed to its own delusional reality. And you really see this in, in the work of people like um, Sinyavsky, um, who um, talks about socialist realism as being a kind of ideologically driven art that loses all connection with a kind with reality itself. Um, and he talks about Stalin himself as being a kind of artist of reality. Um, so this is, this is this is something that, that they are they are also like psychiatrists kind of engaging with socialist realism as a kind of template, but in this case they're doing it critically. Um, and I think that um, what's important about um, this kind of literary focus is that literature really emerges um, both from psychiatrists' perspective and from the perspective of dissidents and dissenting writers as the kind of point of contact, the, the, the common language that they speak. They speak um, what they might, uh, dissidents might not know psychiatric language or, the, or um, psychiatrists might not speak in the language of dissidents, but they all access this kind of um, set of literary understandings that they are able to engage with and that this becomes a way for, the, for, for them to interact a lot more than you might otherwise think they are. Because even though they are sort of engaged in uh, a kind of contest for authority, they are often using similar terms. They are proposing different viewpoints on similar literary aspect, uh, literary, literary phenomena, and they are accessing kind of the same literary references. And you really see this dialogue again emerging. And it's very, it, it is indeed something that's that's encouraging close, encouragingly close to the dialogue that I said earlier. Um, dissidents were trying to invoke between themselves and psychiatrists. But I think more broadly, um, the kind of what, what this suggests, um, what, what this look at sort of literature and psychiatry and dissent suggests is, um, is that, is that um, there was something very important at stake in the post-Stalin in the post-Stalin period, um, you know, in a society where reality is um, comes so under question, where the rhetoric of what reality is is exposed as being so different from the reality that people see around them, um, dissidents and dissenters, on the one hand, and psychiatrists on the other, become locked in this debate over what reality is. The state and dissenters are arguing over very fundamental questions such as what is reality, what is not reality, what is normality, what is normality not. And the state says it's one thing, these dissenters are saying it's one of many other things. And in order to challenge each other's representations or understandings of reality, what they do is call each other insane. And this is something that really emerges as a kind of point of um, 
similarity rather than difference between them. And, and it's, and, 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 and it's part of this dialogue that is emerging, but that also I think is very long lasting and, um, a sort of trenchant aspect of, um, what made this ultimately very small number of people we're talking about, these dissidents, um, these very exceptional people, these dissenting writers, um, what made them so important and what makes this, um, very rich literary uh, body of literary works that they produce these, you know, these letters and essays and poems and plays and, 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 you know, transcripts, what makes them all so interesting in, uh, in mediating um, the relationship between, um, uh, between the state and its critics. Wow. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for letting us take up your time today. And before we go, I have to ask you the famous last question of New Books Network. What are you working on now? Well, um, I have switched gears a little bit. I've moved on to working on a project on um, journalism, actually, drawing a bit on my own uh, personal experience of having been a journalist. Um, and I'm interested in literary journalism, uh, probably in the post-Stalin period. Um, and I've started with um, a project on the journalist Frida Vigdorova, who emerged as a figure in my book, um, in that she is best known for producing the transcript of Brodsky's uh, trial for social parasitism. Um, in 1964, but I'm really interested in what came before that because her, um, her interest in law, in transcription, um, her interest in, in morality and questions of responsibility, and her um, extreme engagement in sort of civic action are a feature of her journalism for decades before um, she produces that transcript and becomes a sort of seminal figure later on for um, that dissidents look back to as somebody who taught them how to produce dissident texts. This material, she's already doing these things in the 50s and, and, the, and the early 1960s, and she's doing them by writing for places like Pravda, um, Izviestia. She's writing for the central press. So what I'm really interested in is the kind of close relationship between um, what emerges as a kind of dissident way of writing and form of journalism and how and the extent to which that's really born within a um within the um official press and is is not in contrast to but a kind of constituent element of the journalistic culture in the soviet union um before the late 1960s that sounds like a really compelling new project and i look forward to hopefully reading that book in the near future i hope sooner rather than later well, thank you for having the time to interview with us today, and we will talk to you later, Rebecca. Thank you so much. <laughs>